Hello, everybody. My name is Lat Mackey, and this is Sequence Break, episode 13, Taskbot with Duengo AC. And here he is, Duengo AC. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I am doing great. For somebody who's not familiar with you and what you do in the community and how you're part of this whole thing, uh, would you mind just giving us a little a brief description of kind of uh, what you do <laughs> and how you participate in our community? So I'm a rather unusual individual because I don't represent just content I run. I represent a large community of people who make tool-assisted speedruns, and that includes folks from the TAS Videos website. I'm the ambassador for TASVideos.org. I, uh, I have TASBot right over... Oops, my microphone. Oh, no. My microphone's on the way. Uh, I have TASBot right here. He will be off camera for the majority of this, but There's I have TASBot, TASBot right here. Yep. He is my buddy. So this is this is a Taskbot. He's actually uh, got a got the wrong badge right now, um, but that's okay. So I got my buddy Taskbot here. Uh, I am the keeper of Taskbot. He is a robot that plays video games perfectly on unmodified hardware. So in other words, a console that has no modifications to it. And in my case, uh, this is a good example. I have an NES that has a video modification to get HDMI out of it, or to get uh, RGB video and then upscale it to, to HDMI. But every other regard this is a completely unmodified console and taskbot plays video games on unmodified hardware perfectly like a player piano but we'll get into that we totally so i am keeper of taskbot uh i'm the president of the north bay linux users group i'm an advocate for linux everything that i'm recording on today is in fact happening in linux so yeah I was uh, fortunate enough to do a panel that we presented at SGDQ 2019 with Duango. That's kind of how I met. We met, and uh, he is just as big as a geek and enthusiast as as myself, and I think a lot of us are for this kind of stuff. So if if you're uh, listening to this on the audio, I may recommend. I I think you might want to check out the video on some of these things because uh, Duango is showing a lot of the things he's talking about, and it's pretty awesome to see. So uh, let's let's first uh, we're gonna take it a step back here, and we'll start a little bit with just uh, you personally. Um, when did you start playing video games? And can you remember maybe your first experience with video games? What might that might have been? Uh, my first experience with video games was actually pretty chaotic. So I am going to put him over here. Just oh, there it is. Look he at that. A seat. Yay, yeah, he welcome, deserves a seat. Welcome to Spot. Yeah, we'll, we'll pose him up here. There we go. He is on camera. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot better backdrop. So, Perfect. Um, I actually have a very interesting and I guess you could even call it a touching story for how I ended up where I am. I am interesting in how I came about getting to video games because I didn't have a traditional path. I, I grew up on a farm in northeastern Colorado. We didn't have a lot of resources and uh, ultimately it took a lot to be able to even get a video game console. I remember the first console I played around with was an Atari 7800 that was given to us as part of uh, some kind of, come review this timeshare and we'll give you a video game console. <laughs> and the Atari 7800, of course, by that point was uh, <laughs> it's a complete disaster of a console. Um, so I saw this Mario thing and I was really excited about this Mario thing, but I didn't have a Nintendo. And then Super Mario Brothers 3 came out and I really wanted that game. So. I invested some of my own money. I purchased a in-the-box brand new copy of Super Mario Bros. 3, but I didn't have a Nintendo to play it on. All I could do was smell it. All I could do was like, read the instruction manual. No. So I, I, I spent months cleaning, uh, cleaning things, pulling weeds, scraping paint off of barns, 
whatever I could do around other other odd jobs around other farming areas that I could do to get enough money to buy a Nintendo. So I bought a Nintendo, and Super Mario Brothers Three was my game. I played that thing like crazy. That was that was my deal right there. It's definitely one of my favorite games of all time as well. It's my first speed game I ever ran, and it's just <coughs> it, I think I man, you sound almost very similar to my child. That kind of it's for some reason there's something about that game to just kind of change rocks your world, rocks your you know, especially if you're a kid at the time when you're first playing it, you know. Yeah, so that was that was my story, and and it never really went away. Like I, there are some people who say, oh yeah, I played video games when I was a kid. No, I like. <laughs> Played video games. <laughs> I worked hard to get that console. I worked very hard to get a copy of Legend of Zelda: Link to the Past. It's still one of my favorite games. Just to even get a Super Nintendo and to get that that console, it was a big deal. So I'm curious if you were into the tinkering as a kid already, or did you play the, like were you your goal to beat the games? Like, how did you experience video games as a kid? And curious if it influenced at all, you know, your life going forward. So I would say the best way to phrase it is like every other kid. Nintendo games were hard. They kicked your butt. Absolutely. Man, Mario 3 was not an easy game. And uh, so I was, I guess I was a filthy casual, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I was young. Yeah, <laughs> okay, totally, was, totally. But I remember the first time I beat the game without cheating, without, not well, not cheating, without warping. And that was an accomplishment, man. I, t I worked hard at that. So a lot of it was I didn't have anything else. This is something that, that's actually kind of interesting when you think about it. A lot of people have a wide library of, of things to choose from. If I look at my Steam library, I have 700 games on there. There are so <laughs> many games, there's so much choice, but I had nothing. I had a couple of cartridges, and I gravitated toward these games that were the most fun. I had another one called High Speed. It was a pinball machine game. I'll get into that in a bit uh, that I picked up. Uh, there's all these aspects that are just fascinating about what happens when you only have a couple of small games and you just play them to death. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so I, I guess that kind of leads then. Is, is there some point where you try going beyond what's presented to you in just its original form? Like, is there any point where you start tinkering? Because I do want to ask like how you end up trying, you know, attempting to, to, to task a game or like, is there a journey to lead you from one place to the other? So my journey was very fractured and happened in a very, very unusual way that is not typical. In my case, I, um, I, I kind of grew up, right? I, I moved on. I started on something called Duango. I'll explain later. Uh, we'll get to that. I eventually moved into the point of making tool-assisted speedruns myself. But that might be jumping ahead of where you actually want to go. All I can Perfect. tell you is that I, I had a Nintendo, a Super Nintendo. I skipped the PlayStation generation entirely. I never got an N64. I couldn't afford it. I had a Game Boy and a Color Game Boy. I played those types of games, Legend of Zelda, Link's Awakening, things like that. And so my childhood was really Nintendo-focused because the Atari 7800 was very limited and they didn't have much content for it. Mm -hmm. My focus was really on Nintendo and Super Nintendo games. Everything from, oh, wow, God, Super Mario World that game <laughs> it it bothered me because it didn't have the same mechanics as Super Mario Brothers 3 but it it thrilled me because there was so much you could do with it and the original Mario Kart I played so much of it so that such, was my childhood such a great game and that, that you mentioned it and so I think that's literally the, the, going to be the next uh, question is is there an origin story then to your name Duango you met Duango AC you mentioned it uh, curious how that came about <laughs> So Duango stands for Dial Up Wide Area Network Gaming Organization. It used to stand for Doom Wide Area Network Gaming Organization. 
<laughs> because it was created by some folks from id software specifically to allow multiplayer matches over a modem normally if you wanted to play doom in a four-player match you would need to have four people in a room on a local land if you wanted to play one other individual for a head-on-head -head match you could do so by dialing in with a modem so you could you could do a modem play with doom which was pretty amazing considering yeah. the year that all this came out but what Duango did was added in a small bulletin board system where everyone would dial into this BBS type thing called Duango and from there you could join a match and you could have four player matches over a modem and you could pull it off with, with something like a 33.6 modem you didn't need, even need 5600k you oh, could do wow. a 33.6 modem and it worked and it <laughs> it worked like it legitimately was very playable. It wasn't quite the same lag as being in a LAN party, so I did a lot of LAN parties like Bedlam in the Denver area, uh, but I really liked this experience. I remember doing all these crazy things. So in the day, does, who here remembers long distance? <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember having a 2400 so, baud modem. So, <laughs> so I, I turn 40 next week. And this is terrifying to me. Like, I, I don't feel like I should be 40 at all, like, even remotely. You don't even look half of it, dude. Just like... <laughs> <laughs> but, in, so I'm dating myself a little bit by talking about these LAN parties oh, or sure. this long distance stuff. I still had a party line where I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I never experienced one of those, but... So. Yeah, they didn't get rid of them out in the country for a long time. They got rid of them in cities, but a party line was this crazy thing. You'd pick up the phone and somebody be complaining about their aunt Marge or <laughs> you just never knew what you were going to get when you picked up that line. So I, we eventually got a real phone line and I was able to, to dial in to Denver, but there was one minor problem. It was a long distance phone call from the rural country area I was in, in Northeastern Colorado. So which means expensive. I figured folks. out it's going to be expensive real quick. That's what he's saying. <laughs> it, well, it's going to be expensive for my parents. Oh, really yeah. quick. <laughs> That's a good point. So, <laughs> Trust me, there is a trickle-down economics lesson here, but more on that some other time. Um, so I decided that I really wanted to do this, and I found this thing called Denver Direct Dial, where I would dial into a town that was between me and Denver and enter a passcode, and then it would beep twice, and I would be able to dial the number in Denver I wanted to dial, and it would do so as a local number. And it was something like uh, 10 or $20 a month. I can't remember the exact fee. But it allowed me to make a local call to Denver just by bypassing it, by hopping through this other... Anyway, this is the thing you don't even think about these days. Like, you don't yeah. even... Who would do this? That sounds so complicated. <laughs> and I figured out ATDT codes to be able to put commas in so I could do the dial string automatically so it just automatically did all of the numbers. It was great. It's, anyway, so I dialed into this Denver server and I spent a lot of time on there. I spent a lot of, a lot of time chatting because you had to pay by the hour of, of gameplay time. So I spent a lot of time chatting... Eventually, I got a, a, a lame job and eventually got to the point where I was, was paying for the service and ultimately became a moderator on the Denver Duango server. And my username on there was AC. When I got past that point in my life, specifically when Duango itself as a service, as a BBS, was replaced by, let's phrase it, let's just be honest, was replaced by the internet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, was replaced by things like, do you remember battle.net? Mm -hmm. um, all those, yeah. So when Tell that happened... That anyway. <laughs> Duango, as, as it was, just died. There was no reason for a phone bulletin board system when everyone was just connecting over the internet anymore. So 
I transitioned to doing things online, and I needed a username, and AC was taken because this was after the long... What, what did they call it on AOL? The long September, long October? Anyway. I never had an AOL account. I don't know. <laughs> there, was a, there was a time when AOL experienced a massive amount of growth when a whole lot of students all started at the same time. I think it was uh, 95 or something. Oh, Eternal and September. From Eternal September, yes, that was it. And it just never ended. <laughs> all of these new people that didn't know anything about being online were suddenly online. So I know we're way off topic, but this yeah, is like yeah. exciting stuff for me. Um, <laughs> so I became the username Duango AC. I just started using that because I was the AC user from Duango. And then it occurred to me much, much later that maybe that was a bad idea because Duango is still a real company in Japan who owns Nico Nico Video, which is a website that hosts tool-assisted speedruns in the Japanese environment. So maybe not my best choice. So <laughs> a few years ago, I counterbalanced my name to try to make a difference. So now my Duango is lowercase and my AC is uppercase. See, so that's that's how I get around the Yeah. So that, that's why I'm like, I am Duango AC. I'm not just Duang or... <laughs> And by the way, that can go some really bad username directions, but we'll just leave that another conversation. <laughs> I had no idea that it was an acronym, though. That's actually, uh, thanks for sharing that, because it's, uh, first of all, it's interesting that that, that many letters uh, represents, uh, that there was a, quite a name for the, uh, the the group that you were speaking of, but uh, that's great. That's that's really cool. So I, so then let's, let's, let, let, let's talk about the journey. Um, when did you first become aware of tool-assisted speedruns? Well, I guess let's take a step back. What is a tool-assisted speedrun? I will mention that we did have memory tasks on an earlier episode and she kind of walked us down the path of tasking and things like that but what is it and how did you when did you become familiar with this with with these tools and things like that first of all for anyone who's listened to all of the mindless babble up until this point thank you <laughs> i hope that you if you if you started this podcast and actually wanted to hear useful information i hope you skipped to this point because here's where things actually matter i will put a time stay up on the uh, youtube video no problem Note, at this point, the podcast actually started to matter. Um, so a tool-assisted speedrun. The definition of a tool-assisted speedrun is any kind of speedrun where you're using tools to assist your play. Yes, I know that's kind of a lame way of phrasing it, but that's really all it is. And one of the things that's interesting about this is the original definition of what that meant. In 2003, there were some prior examples of a tool-assisted speedrun. They weren't necessarily always called that. Sometimes they were called demo files, oddly, in Doom, which is one of those interesting oh, predecessors. Yeah. But in, in 2003, someone named Morimoto released a Super Mario Bros. 3 TAS, or Time Attack is what he called it. And it was, it was misspelled. It was in broken Japanese, English. It was really not well-labeled. People didn't know what it was. But it showed the craziest stuff it was these these nutty maneuvers where Mario was getting incredibly close to a piranha plant and nearly dying but not dying, somehow getting 99 lives. Just the craziest stuff. Like, I was watching this thing in 2003, and I just can't make any sense of what I'm looking at. And in that time, we're talking predating YouTube. This was a Windows Media file that had been exported from, I now know, the Fantasia emulator. And at the time, Morimoto's tools were extraordinarily primitive. He had the ability to record the sequence of button presses. He had the ability to take a snapshot, a save state in time. And he had the ability to go back to that save state or load state. You can also call it a re-record. So he had the ability to record what buttons he'd pressed and go back in time to, to that point if he made a mistake. 
But what he didn't have was any of the advanced tools that we we normally consider required for a tool-assisted speedrun emulator to exist. And that specific tool was frame advance. He was just playing the game in slow motion, and if he made a mistake, he would hit a button to load to a previous point and try again. And what's telling is he's only about a minute off of the existing world record. So in, in, in the years since 2003, the time of the Super Mario Bros. 3 warps run has only decreased by about a minute. Wow. I mean, it's still staggering when you think about it. But Sure. So when this run came out, this tool-assisted speedrun came out, it was extraordinarily controversial. Because at that time, Speed Demos Archive was the king of the, the, king of the hill. I mean no disrespect to anyone in that community at the moment. No. But it was the only game in town right. for that. And people like Radix looked at this new thing as... This is fraud. This is fake. This is <laughs> right. this is an abhorrent thing. This should not have any place whatsoever in our community. This is this is going to destroy us. And that fear was justified because if someone uses tools to pretend to be a human, that's a problem. So a couple of things happened along that that time frame. Bizquit founded a website at the time known as, known as NES Videos to record tool-assisted speedruns, and he made sure to always have a disclaimer saying this is a tool assisted speedrun and to make sure there was context describing to viewers what was going on because the original video distributed by Morimoto in 2003 had no context at all no one knew what a time attack meant in this context they didn't know that Fantasia was used astute viewers could tell but it wasn't necessarily obvious and I you know I didn't know it was a speedrun at the time when I saw that video but I remember thinking it was kind of the first viral video game speedrun as as I knew it and I didn't probably see it until three or four years later but I remember seeing that video I'm like this is the most insane I didn't know what tasking or a task was or anything like that so I assumed it was somebody playing the game and but like a lot of people because I just didn't know what speedrunning was or anything like that it's it was it's a it's still a fun video to watch even today uh for the history of it <laughs> if you will yeah exactly <laughs> So, uh, so okay, so that that's great. So that's our f- first step. What, what what happens after that? Then I, I, does a community start to form around tool assisted speedruns? How does this thing work? So in two thousand and three, two thousand and four timeframe, Bizquit starts NES videos, and what he specifically wanted to do was encourage others to make these tool assisted speedruns, or and make a repository for him to put his own own tool assisted speedruns up, and it exploded in popularity. Uh, to the point that he had to rename NES videos to Task videos because it was no longer just for the Nintendo Entertainment System. We they they had Genesis runs, other fun things. A lot of of pioneering work went on to add appropriate tool assisted speedrun tools to. I know I used tools twice, but yes, okay. to an emulator, <laughs> yeah. specifically Frame Advance, adding in other features, save slots, and all this other stuff that makes it a whole lot easier to make a tool assisted speedrun, and. One of the things that that happened in that time frame was the development of what I'd consider the symbiotic relationship between speedruns and tool-assisted speedruns. And what I mean by that is if you're making a tool-assisted speedrun, there's no reason to start from ground zero. You can reference the original route used in the real-time run to influence what route you use in making a tool-assisted speedrun. And in that process, you might find glitches or things about how the game is written that are useful. So in other words, by having the ability to rock back and forth in time and experiment, sometimes you can find glitches that you wouldn't normally be able to spot in real time. And those glitches, in a lot of cases, are viable even for real-time runners. So what would happen is the route influenced the task, the task influenced the real-time routes of real-time speedrunners, 
And this relationship was happening without people even realizing that it was a thing. In many cases, it wasn't acknowledged or recognized because there was still this bit of a divide in the community. And I'm very thankful to see that that divide has started to lessen as people have started to recognize the strengths that both communities combined can bring to the table. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's that's actually kind of when my mind as a real time speedrunner uh, started to become wide open and really have interest. It just it, it becomes a really creative process. So easy games in the chat, but memory tasks. We all got to there was a there was a lot of communication, not a lot, but there was communication back and forth when we were doing the when she was doing when she and Easy were doing some of the bonk games. And um, you know they were asking what strats work for you, so they try it out in the tasks, and we talk about routing. And it 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 uh, first of all it makes the whole process really enjoyable, but secondly. There's so much to be learned, vice versa. I mean, towards each other, you know, they're, that they are trying some things that might actually be viable in real time. And I, I, I'm glad to hear that. Or I'm glad to see that the community has come that far to do those kind of things, because apparently that's maybe not exactly how it started. But which is interesting. It's interesting that it's uh, it's changed over time. Very much so. Um, so what was the first, when was the first time that you yourself ever attempted a tool assisted speed run? What was that game? Uh, what, which, what, 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 how did that happen? <laughs> How that happened is ridiculous. So, <laughs> earlier I mentioned a game called High Speed. High Speed was originally a pinball machine released by Williams in 1987. It was a System 11 game that was pretty simplistic in its layout. It was just a three-flipper game. Uh, was a lot of fun. It had a really good theme of trying to outrun the cops. This was back in the days of 55-mile-an-hour speed limits in the United States. So... <laughs> Your, your whole goal in this game was to run the red light. Well, Rare, the same Rare that made Donkey Kong, ported high speed to the original Nintendo Entertainment System. And the NES game was interesting. It wasn't necessarily very faithful to the original pinball machine in some senses. The core rule set was correct, but they added in extra weird things. They added tokens that were on the playfield that would then cause a safe to pop out from the playfield or a helicopter to come down and, and retrieve the ball. So they augmented the game because apparently it wasn't deep enough, I guess. So what, what happened here is I had played an old pinball machine called Space Shuttle in the local... Uh, there was a local restaurant that had a pinball machine there and I, I enjoyed playing pinball but my grandmother would give me quarters but at a certain point she'd run out of quarters right? <laughs> so I remember I would, I would go in my early years of having an NES after the point where I finally had a little bit of, of uh, capital not much but enough <laughs> I would go rent games this is the thing like you used to rent games, games all the time so I went down to the video store I rented games and I, I kept renting the same game high speed because I found it fun I didn't I had never actually played the real physical pinball machine, but I really enjoyed this this video game called High Speed. It wasn't the greatest game, but something just kept drawing me back to it. And eventually they they started selling their collection and I bought this copy of High Speed. And I still have that cartridge today. It's over on the other side of the room. Well, eventually I started collecting pinball machines. I bought my first pinball machine when I was 18 years old. I bought a Williams Whirlwind. And at some point in the future, I ended up buying a high speed. So I had the game, and I had the game. Oh, my God. Like the real thing. Yeah. So I, I had a physical high speed pinball machine, and I had the cartridge. And at that point, I'd been really sucked into this whole tool-assisted speedrun thing. So I'm like, I, I, I got to do this. So I hop in, and I make my best attempt at a tool-assisted speedrun of high speed. And... It had been long enough since I played the game in my childhood that I forgot there was kind of a second quest type thing. 
<laughs> so my first submission got rejected because it didn't complete the game fully and I felt really bad and I had to do a lot of optimizations. And by 19, I'm, I'm sorry, by, by 2008, the, the community had moved very far. In 2003, you didn't even have frame advance. By 2008, it was expected that you were using tools to monitor memory, to look at RNG memory addresses, to use Lua scripts to try to automate the process of getting luck the way you wanted it to be. And my first attempt was uh, subpar. And even now when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, God, why did I try to submit that? The, the one thing I can say about tool-assisted speedruns is they are made by people who have to be perfectionists. Because if you're not a perfectionist and you submit something, the perfectionists will tell you that you were not a perfectionist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's actually the, the, one of the key points. A tool-assisted speedrun can be made by anyone. But the type of people that run a game in real time and the type of people who run a game as a tool-assisted speedrun, tend to be very different people. In real time, you need, no pun intended, twitch reflexes. You need to have the mechanical skill to be able to perform certain actions. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be amazing at it, but you have to be good enough. And a tool-assisted speedrun removes all of that. It takes away all of the human limitations of luck, reflexes, memory, all of the things that hold us back as as humans from a skill perspective completely are washed away and what you're left with is exchanging time for perfection. You can spend as much time as you like looking at how the game behaves, looking at how memory behaves, looking at how the rules interact, how the mechanics of the physics of the game work, and perfecting the game. And that's kind of expected at this point. No. So yeah, I eventually got it published. It's my first published task on Task Videos and the rest is history. And, okay, so you just mentioned it, but I think this is kind of an important part to the story of this is that uh, I'm curious. Uh, not, uh, so you published on taskvideos.org uh, once it was it was approved. What what has the process of judging a tool assisted speedrun changed at all over time? Um, I, I, and the only reason I asked, or not one of the only reasons, but I, I look in, if you look at taskvideos.org, it, it's a it's um how do I describe the layout? It's, it's, it, I don't want to say simplistic cause that's not it, but it's, it's functional. You know, it, it looks like it was made by engineers. Uh, to a I think extent. what you're trying to say is it's archaic PHP. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to be, but I, I mean, it's so it's interesting in the late aughts, it was still task videos. Was there anything before that or, and how, how was the, has that changed at all? So as a quick rundown, BizQuit originally made NES videos with, with a yeah it's yeah, it's it, it very pre-web 2.0 <laughs> that's a good way to phrase it there you uh, go chat chat is being very helpful <laughs> so the the reality is that it the first website database was actually kind of a mess and they had to redo it and they had to redo it and eventually uh, other people came on to help Adelicat and uh, at some point Nach got involved Ilari other folks that were key parts of Task Videos in those days and they rebuilt it and they made it what it is today and that was over a decade ago and it hasn't changed it, yeah it's been the same since like 2007 <laughs> has the process changed though i mean uh, you know so the process yeah, yeah the process has not changed okay. so the, on both the website and the process really have not changed uh there is a judge that will take a tool assistant speed run will review it will solicit feedback will ask for comments from viewers and will gauge whether it's appropriate to whether it's in the rules of the site whether it's of a quality level that's good enough. And sometimes they can be really picky, but assuming there aren't any glaringly obvious improvements that have to be made, it'll generally make it through at least to what we call the vault tier. Vault tier games are games where you, the, the category must be 
the fastest completion. Can't be any other weird play around t uh, category. And it's for games that are technically done well, where the tool assisted speedrun is competent, but it's not necessarily entertaining. High speed is a vaulted game. It, it is what it is. It's not that entertaining <laughs> to watch. Mo mostly because it has something like 10 minutes of unskippable cutscenes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> for, for, for a 20 minute run. <laughs> so it's bad. <clears throat> but then there's the moons tier, which is a little bit more forgiving. You can do playground categories. And that's for things that are entertaining and also in kind of that perfect uh, realm of things. And then we have stars runs. And there are very few stars. I think there's a percentage of the total runs on the site that can be starred. And those are the best of the best. Those are the ones that are really entertaining per minute, very high skill shown, lots of effort put into making it. Those are the best runs. And th that, that category has been... It's, it's kind of morphed to that over the years, but it's been that way for a long time at this point. Well, and I appreciate uh, it's obviously it's I think it's a system that works. And this is just me, you know, nobody just, just uh, observing the process because we've seen speed runs and especially competitive leaderboards. Really, there's been quite a change over the last 10 to 20 years of how we submit runs. If there is even a, com a competition of it or is it just something we're doing for display? I mean, it's 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 it's, it's so the fact that that this process is say the same. I think that says something about the process itself is that it's uh, it's it's stayed uh, relatively similar for the past uh, over a decade now it sounds like yeah it really has it has not not really changed much on that site now that's also been a problem <laughs> because <laughs> in 2014 i did something with this guy over here but we'll get to that <laughs> and that, that kind of <laughs> that kind of broke the site a bit well okay. and it still so, remains broken before we leave the task conversation are there what are some of the challenges to um you know using tools to uh, speed run a game some of the challenges are boredom uh, some of the challenges are, and not just boredom. I, I want to be really specific here about one thing that can just demotivate you so badly, and it's desyncs. And it's it's when you find an improvement earlier in your run that you then have to completely blow away hours, weeks, months, Ugh. in some cases years of work. And I'm not kidding when I say years of work. If there's one thing I can say about tool-assisted speedruns that are done well, done with perfectionism in mind, it's that I can't emphasize enough how much effort goes into these runs, how many man hours, how many re-records. You might have hundreds of thousands of re-records where someone tried something, backed up, tried something different, and repeated that process iteratively over and over and over again as they walked through the game. And... At a certain point, you you get to this this realization that, okay, I can save this many frames if I go back and redo this work, but it means throwing out this many hours of effort. And it's just so disheartening that some people oh. just give up. So there's a lot of unfinished tool-assisted speedruns because someone realized there was a problem. Now, if you justify it and go, hey, look, I know I can save 47 frames all the way back at the beginning of the run by doing this, that's a, a potential improvement for the future. I'm not going to go back and do that because the lost time would be too, too terrible. So we started kind of giving people allowances for that. It used to be so harsh. It's like, oh, you dropped these frames. We know about this. So there, so there is that. But really, it's just it's, it's so much effort. And one of the things that I'll point out about this level of perfectionism is that it tends to mean that there's a different class of people that get involved in tool-assisted speedruns. 
And when I say different class of people, I do not mean it as an insult. But I do mean it in one other way. We get the fringes of society. We get people who are on a spectrum or another. We get people who have OCD. We get the perfectionist of perfectionists. We get people who are obsessive about certain aspects of, of a game. Maybe they're not necessarily even a fan of that game, but they can't see it done wrong. So that's a really common uh, type of person who, who tends to do tool-assisted speedruns. Well, and if I may, I believe that's actually an attribute that's kind of interesting that does carry over between uh, tassers and RTA runners. And that's because, so I, I use myself as an example. I am not very good at video games. It takes me a long time to figure out a lot of tricks and how to beat a game and things like that. But similar to a person who you know, uh, is, is tasking a game. I have the patience and, and, and the drive to not give up, <laughs> even if it's going to take me hours to figure something out. I noticed with some of the best tool assisted speedruns I've watched, some of the most incredible things it ha I've learned it. These things can take months to pull off. So you have to have some patience and some perseverance to make it work. And I think that's a, an attribute and a quality that definitely, um, we can see on both sides of the spectrum. Absolutely. Uh, got to so, grind it out even on real time runs. You just got to grind out that run until you get it. And that takes perseverance. It's hard. You literally have to grind it out. Such a true uh, statement. So, you know, we, we've been dancing around it and he's sitting there in the background. What exactly is Taskbot? For those of us who I, a lot of people are familiar with seeing it on, I'm sure, Games Done Quick and other areas, other probably public and, and marathon type events. What is Taskbot? So Taskbot is a is a robot that is a mascot. He is not really a robot per se. Um, so let me break it down just a little bit. And in fact, I have all of the things to show you right here. So I have a cat who would like to be sitting where Taskbot is. <laughs> I have a cat over here. Come on. Come on, buddy. Yeah, she's ignoring me. It would okay, not be the first so, cat that has made an appearance on the podcast, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so... The process of console verification is taking a tool-assisted speedrun originally made with tools in an emulator and playing it back on original hardware. In other words, you used an emulator of this. Originally, in this case, this is a, a, a top-load NES, but you used an emulator of this Nintendo Entertainment System. You created a speedrun with it and subsequently made a file that was a sequence of button presses to play back on the original console. So think of this as a player piano. If you have a player piano with a piano roll, it is a scroll of paper with perforations or holes in it that as you send it through the player piano, it plays a predefined sequence of notes in order until you, you get to the end of the song. A tool-assisted speedrun being played back on the original console is exactly the same thing. But instead of playing back a predefined sequence of notes, you're playing back a predefined sequence of button presses in order, one frame at a time, until you get to the end of the run. And when you power this on and you have Taskbot connected to it or, or a replay device connected to it, you are doing exactly that. You are playing one thing after another, one frame after another. So what, what Taskbot, really, he's just a mascot. He, all he is is just a... Um, he's just something to stand in for the player, really. And I think the whole reason that Taskbot has succeeded is because before that point, we didn't really have a mascot. Um, a, a Delicat was involved. There were other people that were, that were part of the process. But in the run-up to AGDQ 2014, 
when I knew I wanted to try to submit content for Games Done Quick, I wanted to have some kind of mascot there on stage to represent playing the game. So uh, I originally connected him with, uh, as you can see, he's got some Legos here. I originally connected a Raspberry Pi to uh, Rob Robot, and I called him Rob Berry Pie. <laughs> Not nearly Needless as, uh, to catchy. say, <laughs> it, it didn't work it like it didn't did not fly and mecha richter in the sda forums piped up with man i am really loving these taskbot submissions and the name took off so <laughs> i can only lay like claim to to combining everything um i mean there was there were some other people that were discussing things like a delicat was involved in in kind of saying well maybe we should use a rob robot and some, some other things but uh it was me that took all of the different pieces together and decided to use legos and stitch it all together so that we have this guy and really on one end he has a controller cable just a normal nintendo controller cable there's nothing fancy about this at all on the other end that plugs into this this device here this is one of many replay devices i will expose the ports here this is our TAS TM32 board, exposed bare, all of his 3D printed stuff stripped away. Uh, this is our most current device for replay, uh, and uh, yeah, we just have them in a 3D case that's, the 3D printed case connects to Legos, and that's it. And then we have these visualization boards, so you can see what TaskBot is playing. So we've replaced the buttons in the controller with lights. Um, and that's pretty much all the hardware. We connect this up to a Nintendo and let it rip. What, uh, well, so first of all, who was behind, or is this just you, or is there a team? Like, how did you come up with the first uh, uh, version of TaskBot, and what was underneath the hood? What uh, what was the replay device in the first, in version 1.0, if you will? So there's a lot of people that need credited here. In the very beginning, in 2009, roughly, someone named True in the community managed to connect a, um, a replay device-like thing to a... Nintendo, and he was able to get Mario to jump, but it wasn't very coherent. At the same time, without anyone knowing, a particular hacker named Jakku... No way. <laughs> made, ...made the first true tool-assisted speedrun uh, 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 replay device. Uh, but we, we, oh, cool. his, his was only able to complete the first level. Uh, one moment, I'm going to pull this up. That doesn't surprise me at all, by the way, but... <laughs> Yeah, it shouldn't. It, for those those who who know, uh, yeah, the Yonoid current world record holder Jakku. <laughs> yeah, let me pull this up on Task Video. So there is a where there we go. I have actual dates for this, and it's actually fascinating how this all came about. Awesome. So. Uh, the, there's uh, there's a lineage of it on a website, uh, a wiki page on Task Videos, but. So kind of the, the history here is actually really fascinating because in 2003, you had Morimoto. Um, 2006, you had an, a concept for a Task-Bot, which was an AI-based thing that's closer to what the Mario Mario project ended up being with Seth Bling. Um, Myra uh, started a discussion of playing back tool-assisted speedruns on real hardware around 2006, but nothing really happened. 2008, True makes a suggestion to maybe try it. And then he, he makes an attempt at it in, uh, in October of 2009, but it doesn't work very well. Like all he can do is make Mario jump. Unbeknownst to anyone in the Task Videos community, in November of 2009, Jakku created a BS2-based replay device that successfully played back 
pre-recorded input of Super Mario Brothers 1, completed the whole first level. And I'm actually going to drop that link into chat just because yeah, uh, well, be it awesome. might block me. And uh, I'll oops, also put um, in show notes. Oops. Uh, oh, crud. That, the link got nuked. Uh, there's, a, there's the website, and... It's on my... Let's see here. I see it in the chat. He made it with this. Oh, there uh, what happened to our link? I had an actual... Um, one of the things that can be kind of annoying about editing this page is sometimes links get nuked. Um, anyway, trust me, Jakku did it. <laughs> it is possible to find it. Um, and but, but it wasn't until 2010 that ja that uh, that Micro 500 started work on a NES bot, and in 2011, Micro 500 successfully released an Instructables guide on creating what he called his NES bot. It was awesome because it was able to play back a full run of Super Mario Brothers 1. And that same year, everything exploded. There was a new device from Dark Kobold that, uh, that worked, uh, that was used at SGDQ 2011, uh, that was just this shoebox with a breadboard and all these crazy wires coming out of it. Uh, Soul Calibur made a N64 bot, or he called it the Droid 64, so we started moving into other consoles. GoSonic was involved next year in making a Genesis device. So a lot of other devices were out there, but in 2013, we were still just making everything with breadboards and with, it was not portable. Right. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of scary because when, they, when Dark Cobalt went to Summer Games Done Quick 2011 and showed these, this first attempt at it, it went kind of badly. It desynced on the last boss and it was, oh, no. it was super janky. Yeah. So we knew we wanted to create something a little bit more sturdy. And ultimately, I worked with a number of people, Zid and True and other folks in the community to make a replay device specific for AGDQ 2014. Uh, True's device ended up working fairly well. It was a little janky. <laughs> um, our wiring in particular was really suspect because we weren't using any shielding at all and all kinds of mistakes we've learned since then. But. Um, <laughs> so I pitched this idea of doing tool-assisted speedruns at AGDQ 2014 Suddenly, I kick off this whole. It was like this one domino, just and everything just sort of fell over, not, not in a bad way, to to work out to to this massive event where we were able to expose not just tool-assisted speedruns to a wider audience, a much larger audience than had been present in SGDQ 2011 timeframe, but we were also able to do things that pushed beyond what the average speedrun watching viewer expected. Is, I'm trying to, I, you know, I should have put the video up here in the front one. Uh, what else did you guys do that was that might not have been <laughs> what a normal speedrun uh, uh, viewer experience? Oh, it had something to do with playing Super Mario World and then having the whole game glitch out, and then suddenly we were we were playing Snake and Pong with Mario's head. That's the year. Okay, I've seen that video. Okay. I was like, that's I, I wasn't sure if that was the first one, but okay, <laughs> it's so much fun. You got to watch the video if you haven't seen it yet. Please do yourself a favor and go watch it. Yeah, um, and what, did, what was impressive there was no one had really seen an ace that way, that publicly, an arbitrary code execution that led to being able to take over the console and then use aspects of the game against itself. We used art assets that were already in the game and sound effects that were already in the game. That was done by Master Jun. He is... Master Jun. I always do that wrong. Master Jun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am really notorious for mispronouncing names. Uh, the, that, that was with help with P4 Plus 2. Some other people were involved in 2014 to make that happen. Micro 500 was actually there on site helping. 
So it was a really awesome combination of people that went into this. And that is one thing that, that is worth saying. I was the main presenter and the main organizer, even all the way back in 2014. But there was no way I could do this. I didn't even know how to use an oscilloscope. I'm, I'm going to make barf okay for a second. I did not know how to use an oscilloscope like that. I had no concept of, of what, I was, what I was getting myself into. Um, I didn't know how to properly use a logic analyzer. Uh, there's all these wonderful tools you can use to figure out what's going on with a game. Um, I've, I've collected so much hardware over the years now. I have this, uh, this official Salee 8-channel logic analyzer. Uh, I didn't know how to use any of these things. <laughs> so there was just no way for one person to know everything. In fact, when you kind of think about it and step back a little bit, it takes a completely different skill set for someone to make a replay device, something like... Um, Here's just a random board. Like this is one we're making for a uh, for an SNES. Someone had to lay out these traces. This is a super simple board. It's almost straight through. There's just some pen headers on here, but someone had to make this the, the layout of all these all these lines. Well, that person might not be the same person who is writing the code that's running on the device itself, the firmware that runs on it. And it might not be the same person that is creating the protocol to talk to that device from a Linux computer the script to go over the serial interface to the device. It's not going to be the same person as the person who worked in the emulator to make a Lewis script to dump from the, what we call dump from the original tool assisted speedrun format to the format needed to get a bit stream of byte uh, of button presses in order. So we needed all of these different skill sets and that's definitely very different from a person like Master Jun, Master Jun who is a Glitch Hunter, he's very good at finding flaws in video games. He's fantastic at it. Um, so we needed a large group of people with a lot of diverse skills to pull everything together to do this. I'm just the organizer and the presenter. I'm not that good at a lot of these other things. <laughs> Frankly, I'm not even that good at making tool-assisted speedruns. <laughs> well, and you've told stories on stream notoriously about how the task for this particular game was made over the course of the last 24 hours, and the person creating this, the task itself, the the button inputs, uh, they haven't slept for uh, you know two days trying to get this thing to work. But it's it's nice to acknowledge, and I I really do appreciate that there was months and months and months of thing developments that had to happen before you know Taskbot even is able to make that first input live in an event like that. So yeah. that's pretty awesome. Uh, what are you, you know? So there are it's, there's so many benefits to Taskbot. What what are some of the challenges you run along the way with Taskbot when when he's trying to perform these inputs in 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 uh, you know in real time or live? I'm going to answer that two different ways. The first is political. I I've received everything from death threats to you name it because I'm a cheater, right? Right. right. Oh gosh, yes. And YouTube comments. <laughs> Well, even then, the first appearance at AGDQ was the first time anyone had even seen this, and a lot of people didn't understand the mechanics, even though we explained it. A lot of people couldn't comprehend what we were doing, and they said, oh, you've modified the game. And you know, as much as you try to say, well, look, we have, we have the original cartridge, right? We, we, we're not doing anything. This is an original copy of Super Mario Bros. 2. When I showed this with this exact cartridge at AGDQ 20, uh, 2020, just a couple of weeks ago, we use this specific cartridge. This is a completely unmodified cartridge on a completely unmodified console. There's nothing 
changed about them? Well, I can't say completely unmodified. We did make the uh, modifications for capturing the raw analog signal coming out of it RGB for video quality. Yeah. Exactly. But that I can tell you, if there's anyone on this earth that can say authoritatively that it doesn't <laughs> mess with anything, I can tell you it's fine. Right. <laughs> um, but even though you tell people that it's not modified, some people can't believe it. And, and some people can't believe it to a point that... YouTube comments can get pretty caustic, can get really toxic at times. Oh, sure. I remember one specific conversation where we, we went to RPG Limit Break. We showed Final Fantasy. And a viewer looked at that and went, no, this, you, you're a bunch of cheaters. This is impossible. There's no way you got all of these, these. How did you run away from all these battles without getting harmed? This is totally baloney. And so I tried to explain, okay, well, this is how it works. This is the process we took. And it was exchange after exchange of him totally not believing me and coming up with one point after another. And I just kept patiently answering his questions until the end. He's like, you're serious. Like, you really did do this. Like, you really did work out how to run from every battle. And you... That is incredible. No wonder people are interested in watching this. And you see the, that light bulb moment of, okay, I get it. Yes. So, so there's definitely the challenge of overcoming... People who are, are from the perspective that what we're doing is cheating. It's not. We're playing within the rules of the game. In fact, the way I explained it in that conversation is Final Fantasy was written by a guy named Nasir. And Nasir wrote that game with certain characteristics and certain behaviors that he was unaware of. There are glitches in how he thought the game worked. The difference between what he thought happened and what really happened, in some cases, allowed us to manipulate the game into doing few things we, we wanted to be able to do faster. That was not something he knew about. He did not know there were four squares in the upper right peninsula that you could go grind at. He, he didn't know. He never found that. He released the game exactly the way he wrote it. It just behaves differently than he expected it to. And this has implications in real-time runs and in in tool-assisted speedruns, but in a task, you're exploiting those behaviors far more crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you're just taking it to the extreme. So some people just can't uh, separate that. So there's, there's the, all the people aspect of it. Sure. And it's a big deal because you get so many negative comments after these events that sometimes I've gone into depression after events. Like, Ugh. it's hard. Yeah. It's, it, and sometimes what we do doesn't land. Sometimes... We try our best, and what we, what we show just landed flat. Sometimes there's other things that are outside of our control. Um, really quick example. I don't want to last on it very long or, or, or fixate on it, but we don't necessarily have a lot of control over what Games Done Quick is going to do for donation incentives. And this year's feedback was, well, you had this huge donation incentive, and what you showed us was underwhelming. And so th th that feedback is appropriate, but uh, there's there's some things that are just outside of my control. So th there's, the hard part is is oftentimes from a presentation perspective, the people. The other hard part is just the sheer insanity of what we're trying to do. I mean, they did not build the controller protocol of the Nintendo with the intent of us doing the things we're doing to it. <laughs> <laughs> We do not do these things because they are easy, but because they are hard. <laughs> well, and I, that's what's one of the things that's so impressive about it is that it's you're able to do things that you can't imagine that people who designed the Nintendo actually, you know, somehow imagined that something like this was <laughs> going to be possible on their console. Maybe they were. I, I don't know. Wonder. I doubt it. 
I often have wondered if I could ever talk to an original game designer oh. and see how they feel about what we've done to the Nintendo games. Now, we've had this opportunity because we showed VVVVVV made by Terry Kavanaugh. Mm. And I had some very interesting conversations with Terry Kavanaugh, who yeah. looked at this and went, what did you do? <laughs> what did you do to my game? <laughs> what? What? I did not know that was there. I've had other conversations with Kevin DDR, uh, or, or, or I'm sorry, Kevin from the Celeste team that he was behind some of the audio work i've talked to some of the celeste devs when they see what happens in the tool assisted speedrun for celeste it's just so mind-bogglingly crazy that, that the response is like what did you do to my game well and i think that's uh you know at least for me and i and i i, I believe the community's gotta have somewhat feel the same way because we all really enjoy watching the taskbot section of games done quick we enjoy watching these tool assisted speedruns is that you're doing something very similar to we're doing we love breaking and tinkering with the game and at its very core that's what's happening you're you're just doing the you know you're you're, you're tinkering and tweaking with the game the same way a real time person might do the same you know yeah very much so so the answer to the rest of that question and move on i would say that the challenges we face when we're doing tool assisted speedrun content live as a console verification being played back by a real console with a replay device there's so many different things that we have had to fight with one antidote is 20 agdq 2015 we start playing the game super mario world again because that's just the game we kept doing over and over again. And at a certain point, Super Mario World glitches into insanity and Super Mario Brothers 1 appears. And we got it to work. It took us a couple of tries, but it was a little glitchy. <laughs> like, it was really glitchy. <laughs> and we really struggled to figure out why it was so bad. And then we started looking at the environment we were in. And they gave us this metal cart. This metal cart with... <laughs> okay. Oh my god. You've seen these carts before. They're the rolling carts that have yeah. wires. Mm-hmm. So they got th- like three shelves of wires and when you step back and look at one of those carts objectively and then look up at an aerial antenna and compare the two, you will quickly realize that that rolling cart was this gigantic EMI nightmare. <laughs> or e- EFI. I mean just a uh, you're getting so much so much opportunity for that thing picking up signals and interfering. Right. We were literally pulling, the, and we have the console sitting right on this antenna, basically. No ground wire. No, and I think that's super important. I didn't realize how much voltage can affect the hardware and console and things like this if you don't have the proper voltage running through your consoles. I've learned a lot just from uh, you know being around the community and people sharing these things because, first of all, it's, it's, it's a lot of old electronics, but secondly, all these things impact how well the thing is supposed to perform You know, like in this perfect world type of thing. Yeah, so there's basically two different types of interference we're the most worried about. One appeared in Gradius in AGDQ 2014 when... I'm not going to name names. This person already feels bad about it as it is, but we didn't know. We ended up with the console very far away from where the replay device was based on how the stage was set up. And then after we had plugged the cables in, the controller cables into the console, they pulled the microphone cables up and over the top of our controller cables. And what happened, both times we tried running Gradius, it would go perfectly fine, and then something crazy would happen, and the audience would clap... Oh, and no. it would desync. Oh, so no. we were working with unshielded cables, we were, we, and we were picking up interference. Mm. And, and it took us a little while to figure that out. It was not an obvious thing, right? We went sure. back, we watched the video, we're like, wait a minute. <laughs> so there's interference like that. 
then there's electrostatic discharge. And I can tell you ESD is a huge problem. If, if I start a run and I rub my feet and then touch and I feel a discharge of static, I almost can guarantee you that run is going to desync almost immediately too. Because what's happened is it's lost one of the clocks it, and, it, and, and you, you oh, lose even one of those and you're done. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's so interesting, so, yeah. As a brief divergence, this is, this is where things can get out of control real fast, but I'll try to keep it simple. <laughs> okay. There are five wires on an original Nintendo controller. So if I pick up this Nintendo controller and I show it to you, there's seven cables on here, if you can get, it, get the light correct. Mm -hmm. There's seven different cables, but I was very confused as a kid because I would look at this controller and go, wait a minute, there's up, there's down, there's left, right. Yeah, I've got select on? and start. I've got B and A. There's eight buttons on this controller. How in the world are they? There's only seven wires on this controller. How did they get eight buttons to work with only seven wires? So the answer is actually really simple. There's five wires. There's five volts in ground to get power. There's a latch signal. Latch. Hey, controller, I'm about to ask you what buttons you're press are being pressed. Latch. Get ready. Clear out your state. Clock. Give me the first button press in order that we've predefined. And there's a serial line. The fifth wire is a serial line of communication from the controller back to the console. And it says, oh, yes, I am pressing uh, the, the A button, for instance. So if it's pressing the A button, it sends a one. It sends a high voltage signal. So yeah, there's a shift register in there. So you've got, basically, you can press all eight of these buttons at the same time, and there's individual traces on each of these buttons to the shift register. It then sends all of those in serial, one after another, every time the console clocks. So clocks eight times, gets all eight buttons, reads it into memory, and then it, the game processes the input. Now, if we lose one clock, one clock, we're done, right? And, that, and that's happening every frame. So it latches once a frame on a simple game like Mario 1. It clocks eight times per frame. It does 60 frames a second. And the run is how many odd minutes long? We, the number of clocks that have to be completely perfect in a run is actually really high. <laughs> Uh, and just one of them going wrong will mess you up. So it's scary. I am, I am so glad you're sharing this because there's no margin of error. There's literally no room for any sort of error whatsoever or any sort of impedance or anything like that. So that is fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. So you really have to worry about electrostatic discharge and electromagnetic interference. And the EMI is what killed us when we were trying to do Super Mario Brothers in, inside of Super Mario World. We had some, some stuff that happened where it, it played, mm -hmm. but graphics got really corrupted and it was really dicey. Right. So we moved away from these types of cables. So the original types of cables we had were kind of on the janky side. And when I say kind of on the janky side, I mean it. So here is the original connector type, and you're gonna see really quickly what the problem is here. Like really, really quickly. I've got this this cable here. Wires. Okay. Yeah, so what we did is we took an original five wire controller, and on one end you just got a normal normal controller, on the other end you've got this. So what we did is we took the took the ends and just shoved them into this connector block, and you can see there's wires already popping out. Ooh, I, know, yeah. I know it's, yeah. They just don't want to stay in because these wires are really thin. If you made them too thick, the cable would be too hard to manipulate. So they use thin wires. They're almost like foil, really. So th this was a total pain. So, and this is not shielded at all because who cares? It's just a controller. It's just going to a human. You don't need to be perfect every time. Th but we care. So yeah. we completely abandoned this design out of absolute necessity. And what we've moved to 
It, well, at one point we tried shielding in a different way. So this was the SNES cables we used all the way back in, uh, when did we do these? These were uh, for like 2016 timeframe. So these are Super Nintendo cables. So we tried like wrapping foil around them, sort of, and it helped. Um, these were True's visualization boards back in the day. He had his own. I mean, it helped, but it's still the same problem. You can see this is like losing. There's wires right. sticking out of this. Like, right. <laughs> it's not good. So still not good enough. So we had to do better. So while, uh, while I was looking for that, yes, that it did go into Zelda. So you got to check it out, Dr. Koslick. It's on uh, Duango's YouTube uh, uh, channel. So then, then Micro 500 went like, look, I'm done. So we used shielded STP, shielded twisted pair Cat 6 cable. We, we put uh, uh, our own SNES connector, for, in this case, on, on the end. Uh, Micro 500 did all the effort on building these cables. It's fully shielded. We, have, we decided to use a shielded uh, Cat 6 on the other side. Uh, and these are the cables I still use today. Micro 500 made just amazing equipment for us. Uh, he also did the visualization boards that I showed you earlier right here on TaskBot. He built these, same thing, really good shielded cabling. So by using shielding, it helps us quite a bit to kind of try to mitigate that problem. But even then, at big events, we really try hard to keep people on the stage from moving around. Like, just don't move. <laughs> While we're doing the task, everyone in tech, stay put. Stay away. Stay away. <laughs> don't climb up and down off of the stage of the, the stanchions or anything. Just stay where you are. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's, I think, where if I'd like to take this conversation next, if you don't mind, is that uh, I, if you watched uh, AGDQ 2020, you may have seen the Super Mario Maker 2 demonstration uh, after they did the race. And... Um, it was while well, you guys did a really good job of describing what was happening during that that task period. It was kind of mind boggling to a lot of us, and especially uh, so. I, I I love playing Mario Maker Two. I, I I it's a really fun game. It's it's, it's really enjoyable. But w what you demonstrated and what you showed um, already in my brain, the implications of what we were seeing was was it was happening was that there was this amazing, incredible stuff. And but this one really, if you're if you're gonna break a game, this some of the things you were showing automatically, I'm thinking, oh my god. The game's going to be broken. Uh, I'm going to talk just a little more because like the next day, a great article came out in Ars Technica. And if you're not familiar with Ars Technica, it's really an awesome website that is devoted to the tech enthusiast and the, and for geeks like us. Like it is, they do 50,000 word uh, uh, breakdowns of operating systems and just really cool in-depth article by written by people who know what they're talking about. And Duengo was quoted. Uh, there was a lot, I'm going to uh, uh, link it in the show notes. But if you could, Duengo, tell us a little bit briefly about how that demonstration came about and what exactly is happening when we're watching that. <laughs> so backing up again, this Please, is yeah, me no as the presenter and organizer. I am not the person who invented the <laughs> stuff that was shown, et cetera, et cetera. This is a common, you know, common theme. You'll hear me. He'll make sure that there's attribution. So Conflerpin was the first, the, I know he's an interesting name. A guy named Conflerpin was the first person to crack the code. Of, of how to really do this reliably on real hardware. And by this, I mean playback, a tool-assisted speedrun made with tools. <laughs> I'm not going to elaborate much more beyond that. That's fine. <laughs> on a real Nintendo Switch that was unmodified in every way. I'm going to interrupt you for just a second, because if you read the article, you'll understand why he's not going to go into detail here. There are some legal uh, uh, issues that may be at hand, and we'll leave it at that. that. That's why we can't go too much in depth on that specific, the tools themselves. <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> I can tell you that we did not modify the console or the dock or the controller or, or the... Uh, I, I, I can't say the controller because we were the controller, so I guess you could say we modified the controller, but uh, <laughs> we didn't modify the cartridge in any way. Now, what, what's challenging on these modern systems is is trying to get to deterministic behavior. The reason that we can play back a game like... I don't know, let me just grab another random example. The reason we can play back a game like Dr. Mario, even in this case as a two-player game, the reason we can get away with that is because this game has... In fact, the entire Nintendo console has no external source for entropy, for randomness. The only source of randomness is the player. And that means that if you always provide the same sequence of button presses, the pseudo-random number generator always provides exactly the same outcome, which is how you get deterministic playback. It's what makes tool-assisted speedruns played back on the original hardware even remotely possible. With a game like Super Mario Maker 2, running on a Switch with an HDMI out, video path and no concept whatsoever of how frequently it's pulling the controller compared to what state the internal game engine is, it's nearly impossible. Remember I said we were using that latch to know when the game was asking for input? The yeah. problem with a Nintendo console, a Nintendo Switch console, is it's using a USB controller protocol that pulls 125 hertz. That does not divide into 60 frames a second. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. So... We had to come up with really unique ways to, to overcome that challenge. And there were a number of people ahead of that time, Zayetskin, others in the community that had developed stuff that could sort of work, but not with any kind of precision. There were other program, pro, programs like uh, Twitch Plays, Nintendo Switch. There were other things that had come out before that solved the problem, but not at the level of fidelity we needed. And Super Mario Maker 2 has one characteristic that makes it a little easier to work with. It is deterministic. Unlike Super Mario Maker 1, when you start a level, the outcome of that level, with very minimal exceptions, is very consistent. Hmm. So a Mario Maker 2 runner has a huge advantage. Every input they provide will always result in the same randomness output. That's actually a big deal for that community. So I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that they had done that. That's interesting. I wonder why yeah. they made that. Why the designers made that choice? But that's a whole separate kit and caboodle. <laughs> uh, Speedrunning mostly. So. Oh, oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Because they were headed toward ninja speedruns, and we didn't know that yeah, at the that's time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was going to say. It had to be the ninja speedruns. Yeah, they knew they were doing it, so we didn't. Mm, um, how was how was this discovered? Well, yeah, we definitely question. knew that Mario Maker One was totally not reliable because real time <laughs> runners could tell. That it, there was no determinism. You started the level and things were not the same every time. Mm -hmm. uh, Mario 2, you could observe that it was actually more deterministic. So it was just like observation by playing it. So There's some great kind of levels answer, that came but... out of Mario Maker 1 that actually show you how random it can be and how non-deterministic it is. There are creators built around that premise. <laughs> there were a handful of levels that displayed that. We definitely knew that there were some improvements that had to be made to, to get to the point where we had consistent playback on Mario Maker 2. And Again, I, for legal reasons, I'm not going to get into the secret sauce, but I am going to get into what the implications of those legal reasons are. There's two specific fears we had. And in particular, Melos, who was there on stage with me on uh, on the stage at, at AGDQ 2020 showing Super Mario Maker 2 being played back, he was especially concerned. Because it was his Switch, right? <laughs> like He's sitting here on stage. <laughs> Now, he hasn't modified it in any way. We double and triple checked the terms of service. We weren't violating those. So the consequences were actually very different. One set of consequences was, what would Nintendo do 
if, for instance, they sued us. Now, I've started a social benefit company named Tool Assist L3C to hold TaskBot's assets. And the reason I did that was partly because I wanted to make sure that if I ever got hit by a bus, that things could proceed forward. Uh, but the other reason was legal protection because we're doing stuff that's kind of risky. And we had one specific risk in mind. As you can see, TaskBot is a Rob Robot made by Nintendo with a trademark in 1987 or 86 whenever they filed for it. Mm -hmm. We don't really want to poke that bear. I mean, it, the optics on that wouldn't be great if Nintendo were to come to us and say, you used our thing to raise money for charity, you jerks, we're suing you. The optics on that wouldn't be very good. Yeah, <laughs> right? not so much. But th the risk is still there. Now, yeah. that is a risk, right? There is still a risk that even today that Nintendo could choose to use some legal action against us for what we showed at AGDQ 2020 or any previous event for that matter. We're working on mitigating that by replacing TaskBot with a different design of our own that does not use a Rob base. The prototype artwork that you saw on the t-shirt the Yeti sold during AGDQ 2020, which mm -hmm. 1,600 of those sold, by the way. Oh, that's awesome, that's so yeah. great. That was $8,000 extra plus to uh, to the Prevent Cancer Foundation just that's through t-shirt so sales. Yeah, that's so, wow, that's crazy. That was fun. The yeah. artwork on that was specific to try to say, well, this is the direction we're headed in. Hey, Nintendo, we're trying to forge a path so we have copyright on our own thing that is not infringing on you. So that's one, one risk. But the other risk is probably something that many of, the, many of the listeners have already sussed out from the comments we've thrown out already. It's the risk, the real risk, that if the tools we were creating got into the hands of people with malicious intent, it could result in the complete destruction of Ninji speedrunning as we know it. And, and basically the issue is, for those who are not familiar, the Ninji speedruns are time-boxed races, I guess, where they put up a level and allow anyone in the community to play it and try to get the fastest time through the level. And it's a really neat idea. I'm very happy to see Nintendo doing this. We have a method where we could make a tool-assisted speedrun of a Ninji level that is unbeatable by a human. And that's not fair because that record would then get posted on the leaderboards and one of two things could happen. The first is Nintendo could get really upset and shut the whole thing down or the second and a much worse con uh, concern for me anyway is that Nintendo would not act and the leaderboards would be destroyed and it would utterly devastate an entire community. Grand Pooh Bear said something in the Warp World podcast that really hit home. He said, this is bittersweet. This is so incredible to watch, and it's so fascinating to see this game torn apart, to see the things that are possible when you can get to frame precision, but it's bittersweet because I'm so worried about what might happen to the community if this gets into the wrong hands. So it's not just me. You have people like Grand Pooh Bear that are respected in the Mario Maker 2 community who are legitimately concerned about what might happen if bad guys start destroying the, the leaderboards, especially if Nintendo doesn't enforce it. You can hear the passion in my voice. I actually care a lot about not impacting the real-time speedrunning community. And this was really, really dicey because we almost didn't show this. In fact, we had the opportunity to show this at, at the MAGFAST event during MAGFest. And due to some technical challenges and some other legal concerns we had, we held off. I needed the extra time to talk to a lawyer. I, in, I communicated with Ars Technica even before we did it. In fact, the article went live the morning of the event. 
Hmm. So the article actually came out before we showed it. Oh, interesting. Because we were, we were so concerned about how to handle this. If, if something went really sideways, what were we going to do? So this is the first time that we haven't open sourced anything. I mentioned earlier in this interview that I am the president of a Linux users group. I'm an advocate for open source software. Everything I do, we release open hardware. You can go find the designs for the TAS TM32 board I showed earlier made by Onosaurus. You can go build that yourself because we've made everything publicly available, except this. This is one of the only two projects that we've ever done that we've not released anything about. And I, I, I do have to tell you, Duango, I was actually, as I, I, had, I think I might've had a similar response that Pooh might've had when watching it live. But at the same time, I was thinking, man, how fortunate we are that the people who are demoing this are the people who are so thoughtful and caring about our community. Like I, I you know, uh, just tell a quick personal story. When we did our panel over the summer, um, I was fortunate enough to go out to dinner with you and a bunch of the t people who do these type of things. And they are thoughtful and they're caring and they're considering the implications of what they're demoing. And that's to your point, you mentioned that you almost didn't do this. And I thought that I, my, uh, my second thought was like, man, I, I'm so glad that it's you these people who are demoing this because of, uh, you're right. It, it has the potential to break a game and people might, you know, there's always going to be people looking to do various things. There's just, it's unavoidable, but the fact that it was shown this way with this kind of care, uh, I really appreciated that. So I, I'm almost thankful that because if, I mean, somebody's going to discover this, if it wasn't you guys, I'm sure, I'm sure there are other people even looking for these type of things as we speak. I, I don't know. I, I don't know for sure or anything like that. That's just yeah. guessing. Well, despite so. being in a black box, some people did, suss out the likely path we took mm, uh, i'm not going to give any more details we literally yeah. put this thing inside of an actual black box on stage oh my god <laughs> so. well and that's one of the i'm glad you mentioned on it because one of the things that i think is so interesting about what you guys have done is the transparency with it and as a guy i work in nonprofits and things like that so like i transparency is so important in my opinion to good just good practices for anything you're approaching whether it's business or tasking or rta so i really appreciate how transparent you guys have been and i completely understand the reasons why you didn't with this specific case yeah there's one other case uh, if you don't mind changing subjects please, just a little please. bit go for it yeah where we had some real concerns about releasing something you see one time my moderators had a little bit too much fun with paint by numbers so i have a tool that i have on my screen it's paint by numbers it's this tiny little thing where you can type a color and an XY coordinate, and it will put that color pixel in that XY coordinate. So if you've got a 100 by 100 grid, you can say three and four, red, three, four, and make a dot, just a little, little, little dot. And then we developed the way to do multiple colors at once. So you could say one color, but a lot of pixels at once. So you can say red, and then you can have a whole list of XY coordinates, one after another. And people started making these tiny little drawings, and in some cases even animating them on my live stream on Twitch, which was a lot of fun. And then the tools got a little out of hand because my moderators started making some changes to it to the point where we were then encoding the data in Unicode. So we were, it was still, still the same thing. So just X, Y coordinates, but they were encoding the, the data in Unicode so that we could send more, more through at once through Twitch because you do 500 characters on Twitch and you can encode more data in Unicode that way, quite a bit more. And then they found out that they could interleave multiple user accounts and then they started playing a silent film of Charlie Chaplin on my Twitch stream through Twitch chat, consuming approximately 7 to 12% of all worldwide global Twitch chat traffic, causing a global spike in Twitch lag. In chat no lag. way! 
That so, is awesome. So we decided not to release those tools. A few months later, I had a conversation with a Twitch contact I went out, and he said, yeah, we talked internally about whether we should discuss that with you. We decided not to because we figured you learned your lesson. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. That's insane, man. So, so yes, they were playing a, a silent film of Charlie Chaplin at about mm, 10 frames a second on uh, through Twitch chat on my stream. <laughs> Well, and then it I, got even more insane because we started picking random. You know, we started streaming Twitch through Twitch chat, and about the time we did this to TGH, he's like, "What in the actual? What? What have you done?" <laughs> well, I think there's a fantastic segue to your stream because if you're at all interested in any sort of this geekiness, uh, it almost seems like anytime I watch a Duango stream, it seems like the goal of this stream is to somehow break your stream. <laughs> Usually the goal seems to be break me. <laughs> or break you. Yeah, exactly. Physically be able to get to you. Um, uh, where, 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 did you where did you kind of develop the, I don't even know how you talk about, but how did your stream uh, end up the way that it is today? Oh, moderators that are my biggest trolls, I think is the best answer. <laughs> so, and, and, awesome. and the trolling happens in so many different ways. There are a gazillion different methods that my community has chosen to use uh, chosen to use for for messing with me uh, my, my, now usually my moderators tend to have the most access might be the right way to phrase it that and is. they like they like to just they like to play right so for instance suddenly they, they just decide to do this to my voice where <laughs> i'm my effects are all weird. It might be that my effects aren't recorded properly because i'm using stem recordings that are grabbing the raw audio so on the podcast, this might sound normal, but right now, Lat Mackey probably is hearing me sound like uh, I've got a problem. It is definitely sounding that way. <laughs> yes. So here I am innocently doing a stream and suddenly out of nowhere, I sound like Satan coming through my microphone. <laughs> and I'm like, what has happened? Well, what happened is that I had allowed my, one of my moderators access via, via SSH to a user, not a super user, just a user on my, on my computer. He then connected with Open Sound Font, OS, OSD, Open Sound Control, OSC, to my Behringer XR18 soundboard and triggered the effect on my on my channel. That's so insane. <laughs> so now, when you donate a number of bits and tell what effect you want, you can in chat control my voice through donating bits on my channel. So it turned into an actual useful effect for streamers. Hey, there you go. <laughs> No, and I think that's kind of the fun is that they're, I don't want to say exploits, but perhaps that's the best dis description of some of the fun that may be had as you're watching <laughs> your stream, because it's still every time I get a good laugh, even though I don't understand half the stuff that's happening on there. <laughs> I don't understand half the stuff that's happening. What happened now? My, my hue lights get taken over on a regular basis. Suddenly everyone's red <laughs> or party mode and my lights are going back and forth because they figured out how to control my hue lights across the network. <laughs> I was so the... Great. I was the idiot who walked over to the Hue Hub when they asked me to and hit the button to allow them to pair to it. So that was my fault. But <laughs> that's so, so wonderful. Um, okay, so what's next? What's next for Taskbot? Where, where what can what are some of the things you'd like to work on, or if if you even can share some of the things that's next for Taskbot? Well, I think before we can go forward, we have to go back, and I think we need to go back to AGDQ twenty seventeen because that's the point where we realized that we had pushed technology beyond anything that any mere mortal could even comprehend, and we needed to stop. 
Are you familiar with AGDQ 2017? Is this the one where we were, uh, was it? Use three different consoles. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Would you like me to talk through that real quick? Please. Yeah, actually do. That'd be great to have some insight on that. So I'm going to spoil this. So if you have not seen AGDQ 2017, you might want to go back and watch that video. In fact, I a lot of people have never seen it. It has very low viewer count overall mm. compared to our other videos. I will include uh, it in the show notes. Uh, well, maybe not just yet, because here's my plan. It's, okay. It does on, on the Games Done Quick channel, and I think Task Videos themselves also uploaded the AGDQ 2017 block, so you can find them on both resources. But ultimately, they just didn't take off. They didn't get any YouTube views. People couldn't understand what, what was going on. It was so incomprehensible that people just didn't understand what's going on. You're welcome to go hunt it down, but I want to warn you ahead of time, we didn't necessarily stitch things together like we needed to. So I'm (laughs) contemplating on my own YouTube channel at, shameless plug, (laughs) youtube.com slash DuangoAC. I'm thinking about doing a revisited version of that because it's just so complicated that it's, it's hard to understand all the moving pieces. So... AGDQ 2017, we start with a pretty pedestrian thing. The NES Mini had just come out. We finally got our retribution against Gradius. We got Gradius to sync on an uh, on, a, on an NES Mini. Terrible idea. Never use that device for anything serious, but it worked. And then we, we started with just tame, right? Then we started playing, I believe it was Mega Man was the one we did f- first. I think. So we started playing Mega Man, get into a place where we totally glitch out a beam, and suddenly we have Taskbot OS on the screen. So it kind of broke people's minds. It, it was definitely a what on earth just happened here. And so we took over the console. And then it just goes to the Flying Toasters screensaver. Like, okay, well, we're going to move on. So it's left the Flying Toasters screensaver. Except I think instead of toasters, it was uh, NES cartridges. But <laughs> So we did something like that. Then we started playing Super Mario Bros. 3. And all of these shells are being kicked all over the screen, and then suddenly the whole thing kind of falls apart. And we're looking at some kind of demo scene production where the word TAS is sliding across the screen in weird ways that you wouldn't think an NES can do. And it looked like a demo scene production with music playing in the background. We had a custom music track. And then it just paused the music. We, okay, we left that there. Then we started playing Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. And the very first thing that happens is Link hops off of the, the ledge of his house and runs through a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and we go collect some rupees, go buy a potion, and take the potion through the sanctuary door, and the whole thing just completely flips out. And suddenly the screen says, Super N64. And we then proceeded to show Super Mario 64 on screen with audio playing back at... 10 frames a second, which is not that far off from the poor N64, but let's not trash it too much. Playing back at 10 frames a second, roughly, and no one could understand what we had done. And after we did that, we really broke people's minds by playing back Portal. Like, we legitimately played back a speedrun of the original game Portal, which, as a brief digression, if you really want to make Ellen McLean's brain leak out of the side of her head... Tell her about this at a meet and greet at MAGFest because the the look on her face was epic. She's the voice actress for Gladys. And when I told her what we did to her voice and her game, (laughs) she was a little bit, how? And this raised money for charity? Yeah, right. (laughs) So so the, the backdrop of all this is we had taken complete control of all three consoles. We were using Mega Man for right audio. We were using Super Mario Brothers 3 for left audio. We'd figured out payloads to send 57 uh, kilohertz 
7-bit audio to each console and stitched left and right audio together using FFmpeg and Linux. We had taken over Legend of Zelda Link to the Past and we'd figured out how to shove so much data through the controller ports that we were dumping raw frames of video, uncompressed video, onto the the frame buffer, basically. Yeah. Um, as fast as we possibly could with this algorithm in the background to dynamically change the palette we were working with because you can only have 256 <laughs> colors on the screen and stitched all of that through with FFmpeg. And Micro 500 deserves a massive amount of credit for this. Unfortunately, it did break him. It, it caused such severe burnout that he left the community and hasn't been back since. A lot of that had to do with mistakes I made in leadership and how I handled the event that I have felt terrible about ever since. It, in fact completely changed how I handled future events. We skipped a, a GDQ, I'm sorry, after AGDQ 2017, we skipped Summer Games Done Quick in part because in the entirety of 2017 was just a complete reset. We realized that we couldn't keep pushing any farther. This run was insane. We were streaming live video through a Super Nintendo and two Nintendos. And we even did a Skype call where we had James Chen walking around the event <laughs> but no one could understand what was going on. He never walked on stage, so you never saw both things at the same time. It was actually kind of unfortunate, but uh, it was just so insanely over the top. And when when we backed up and went, well, now what do we do? Like, how can you get more technically insane than that? That pushes the boundaries of of everyone's sensibility of what is possible. It's... <laughs> How do you, we were using every last CPU cycle on that Super Nintendo. What can you possibly do that's more insane? So we had to completely reset. Now you asked me, circa 2020, what are we doing next in TaskBot? Well, we've spent the last three years trying to figure out, what are we going to do with TaskBot? We, we can't take this any farther. So we transitioned from going the technical mile and the technical route to pushing things to the entertainment level, pushing things on the entertainment front, figuring out what runs provide the most entertainment. And I would say oddly, Final Fantasy, despite being an hour plus long run at RPG Limit Break last year was one of our best runs. Ah, because really for once we finally had the time to explain what was going on in this tool assisted speedrun. We finally had an opportunity to work through what was actually happening. We had the task author there on stage with competent answers about what was happening. We had Geyer. Geyer? Geyer. Speedrunner. We had him on stage explaining the real-time aspect of that game. It was not technical. We were doing a tool-assisted speedrun on real hardware. We did have to finagle a little bit because it was a no-reset run, but it was a run that was focused not on the technical aspects of how far we pushed it and far more on the entertainment aspect. How do we make this interesting to an audience? And that was a really good change for us. It really set us in motion to be in a much stronger footing. Games like Celeste, where we had just solid commentary. Things like Super Mario Bros. 2 that we showed at AGDQ 2020. That run, I think, is the best thing we did, even better than Mario 2 from a commentary perspective, because the commentary was so strong. It made it entertaining to watch. So where is TaskBot going next? It's going to new platforms, LibTask, Linux Tasking where you can play a game directly on the native Linux operating system. And we have a visualization board to show what buttons are being pressed. We can go the extra mile to practice commentary ahead of time. We're doing things differently in how we're submitting content. No more of this, 
oh, we worked the last 24 hours and we're just now releasing Mario with a portal gun that we just finished all the levels last right. night and he's asleep so we have no idea what the comments are. We're not doing that anymore, right? RPG Limit Break submissions for, for RPG Limit Break 2020 just finished and we promised ourselves we would have all of the content at a demonstrable point before we submitted. And we did. Oh, wow. And that's necessary for us. We need the time between when we submit and when we find out something's accepted and when we go live on stage to practice and rehearse commentary. The events that went the worst were the ones where we were working until the last minute and we didn't have time for that rehearsal. So this is really key to where I want to see things happen with, with Taskbot in the future. There's one other aspect of this that I touched on earlier, which was me getting hit by a bus. It's a lot more than that, though. I went to seven different events last year. I went to Europe. I went to the European Speedrunner Assembly. I went to MagWest Go. I went to RPG Limit Break and two, two GDQs and a bunch of other things. We went to Germany. It was a lot of really amazing events. But at the end of the day, I can't keep doing that. I have... I have two kids, I have a job, I have a day job because this does not pay enough. I spend so much money out of my own pocket to afford the travel and afford the equipment. I mean, these, these things cost a lot of money. <laughs> like, just it's, it's funny how it adds up so quick. You have something just as simple as, um, as buying a game. Like if, if you want to buy a, a new cartridge, some of these games are getting to the point where they're ridiculously expensive. That oh, logic yeah. analyzer I showed earlier is $300, the capture Ooh. equipment. I mean, it just gets so expensive. So uh, I'm, I'm spending money out of my own pocket to do this, and obviously I have to have a day job to help augment that. Um, right. and, and I'm really thankful, by the way, to people on my Patreon, to the revenue that I get through YouTube, the, what minimal revenue I get. I haven't been streaming as much as I'd like on Twitch, but what revenue I get through that. I'm really appreciative of that because it does make a dent in in my travel costs and equipment costs. But the reality is, I I just did too much. I, I ended up about 15k in the hole. My travel expenses and equipment costs exceeded what I could really handle, and I lost my job last year. I was I was laid off after 10 years at the same place. So I got to this point where I'm like, okay, look, I I I am the keeper of Taskbot, and I don't plan to change that. But I need to equip other people to be able to go to an event and take over, especially if I'm unable to. And so TyKevin83 ran all of the Friday block of AGDQ 2020. He did Mario Brothers 2, 3, 2, and Pokemon Blue. Uh, I had Melos who helped me with the content on Saturday for Super Mario Maker 2. I'm sorry, Super Mario Maker 2. I had um, a complete delegation to them. I did not really interfere at all. When I'm setting up for RPG Limit Break, I'm really deferring to the Axeman. He's the point person on that. I'm delegating control of that. He's picking commentators. He's working on, he did the content selection. That's in part because my workload was just simply too high, but it was also because I recognized this needs to grow beyond just me. I'm, limit, I'm the limiting factor here. My, my free time, or honestly lack thereof, is holding the community back. So how do I empower people to take TaskBot content to the next level? I have to let go of control, that's how. So. What's next for Taskbot? Finally answering your question is more, more of everything, but in a way that doesn't kill us. More by allowing other people to take risks and to lead an event. More by allowing the community, which our Discord community is already almost 2,500 people at this point. Uh, it's nuts. More by allowing other people to crowdsource content and to help us do stuff. Figuring out ways to move from just me picking what we're doing at an event to moving to a committee picking what we're doing at an event. In other words, 
knowing which events we want to go take content to, selecting that content well ahead of time, that kind of parallelizing and, and removing me as the bottleneck is the next move for Taskbot to me. Because I see so much future. I don't want to build something that's just about me with this robot over here. It has to be about more than just me as a person. Last year alone, Taskbot content at charity events raised well over $280,000. We're already at 179000 for the donation incentive for Pokemon Blue at HDQ 2020, an additional eight k from the t-shirt sales from the Yeti that benefited the Prevent Cancer Foundation. We're at 186 k raised for charity, and it's not even the end of the month of January. <laughs> You're just started. We're just getting started. Next events up are Desert Tesla Charity Drive. I'm leading that. That's my event where we're incorporating tool-assisted speedrun content and speedrunning content, crowd control from the Warp World guys and Jakku and Cat Devs Games, controlling my Tesla while we drive to RPG Limit Break. Whole other story on why I have a Tesla. That's another story that involves Bitcoin. But anyway, um, but I'm, that's my event. I'm tackling that because I want to see how to incorporate everything I do here on a 200-watt budget in a moving vehicle. <laughs> I got to tell you, man, I, I, it's really nice and appreciative to hear you t say that that is the future of TaskBot. Because for those of us who are more actively involved in the community, um, there are some very legitimate and fair constructive criticism made about what's being demonstrated and what's being shown in public and what, you know, to your point, I'm really glad to hear that you're talking about the entertainment side of it because I know my only, my, as a viewer, my only criticism is that there doesn't, doesn't ever seem to be enough time to really get to the meat of what's happening, like a really great explanation sometimes, uh, that, you know, and I'm, so I, I'm glad to hear that the future of this is taking into account what the community uh, deems and sees is what could be better for as a viewer, as, as for the community as a whole um, because obviously there's something to it there's there's this success with the hundreds of thousands of dollars you've been able to raise for charity and that's uh, you know that's a really important I think it's it's awesome that that's a big part of it but then also uh, you know you know, try, you, this is a community, and you want to you want to be able to to use them or not use them, but uh, have them involved in, in in things moving forward. I think that's really awesome. Domingo. More than anything, I can tell you at least for myself, I feel awesome when I'm able to do something where I'm living beyond myself, where I'm doing something that's more than just what I could do on my on my own. It's more than just doing something for myself. I guess is the right way to phrase it. And when I see other people who are in the community and are able to experience that as well, where they're, they're it's a sacrifice. They're sacrificing their time. They're, they could be doing a lot of other things, but they're coming alongside me in the journey of, this is my vision of where I want to take TaskBot, the community, and I'm so thankful you're here along for the ride. What do you find your passion is? What are you excited to go do? What part do you want to play in this community? allow us to do even more things to impress people and help help create content that people are willing to donate for at charity events. I don't know how this ends. I I don't have an end date where suddenly I'm going to hang up Taskbot and go, no, I'm, I'm all done. I, I see this as something that is going to morph. We don't know what a Games Done Quick event is going to look like in 2030. No. We don't even know what video game consoles are going to be out. We don't know what nostalgia is going to be like. It could be that all of this dies. We don't know. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll have to adapt and be willing to try new things, experiment with new ideas of this fusion of using tools to assist a human to do something that I consider art. And really, when you pull back the camera on everything we're doing, 
yes, the primary focus is charity, but the underlying thing we're creating is art. And I see it that way. We're, we're providing something for viewers that is a work of art in a very unique field, in a very unique medium that they're willing to donate to see. And I think that's just awesome. I'm so glad you say that when uh, when Memory Tass and I spoke, uh, we went to that I, and how creative these things can be. And there is absolutely that uh, aspect of art to it. And uh, I'm glad you you hit upon it, too, because there really is. It's really it's the creative side of the brain, if you will. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I appreciate you taking the time and speaking with us at length, speaking with me at length about all this stuff. Um, if people wanted to go, uh, where are the best places to follow you, to follow Taskbot? What, where would you direct people to go see some of this stuff and experience it? So our main website is task.bot, but okay. the reality is everyone congregates at discord.task.bot. Our main Discord server has become the location where everything actually happens. At Discord, if you're listening, we would really like to be partnered. We're not on Reddit. We're not on other communities. We are on your community, and we would like to be partnered. Um, so <laughs> it's a little plug there. Uh, for those yeah, who are please. not on on good terms with Discord for any reason, we do have an IRC channel that is bridged over. You can go to Freenode IRC and hop on over to Taskbot. You can also find tool-assisted speedrun content at taskvideos.org. That's where you'll find tool-assisted speedrun movie files that are played back on an emulator. There's encodings on YouTube. There's a huge library of content. And if you've never been to taskvideos.org, I encourage you to look at that. I am, of course, the ambassador for Task Videos, and I do want to highlight that that exists. I will say that a lot of our event content does not fall into the clean-cut lines of Vault Tier, Moon Tier, Stars Tier. So a lot of the content, like what we just did with Super Mario Maker 2, isn't represented on the site. We're actively in discussions on how to fix that, that problem. But just know that we are putting a lot of the content that you see at these types of events directly on YouTube. You'll find that at youtube.com slash DuangoAC. And uh, just I'll, I'll plug for himself as well. He's got a great Twitch channel as well. If you're interested in the live side of things, twitch.tv slash DuangoAC. It's, it's a lot of fun there. And I also, I got to tell I'm still, uh, I'm still a participant. I'm sorry, I'm still viewing and, and uh, I love being in the Discord at TaskBot where it's a really welcoming community and especially someone like me who has no technical background. I mean, I if we're talking production, sure, but for this kind of stuff, absolutely not. So I appreciate the community that's been cultivated there. It's really welcoming and a very friendly place. It was a very high priority for me and I mean no disrespect whatsoever to the Task Videos Discord server, but when I first got on Discord, I'm like, oh, this is a terrible place. I don't want to be on Discord. <laughs> and... Ultimately, a media magnet, a center stone, a cornerstone of, of my Discord community and a lot of the things I've done in the past, started the Discord server and eventually handed over, uh, control of it over to me once I finally drank the Kool-Aid. And we started the culture of that. And literally, if you want to use that word in a different way, we cultured that Discord server and seeded it with a different mindset. It is a PG server. We are kind of a kind of a pain in the butt about not using terrible language on there and we really work hard to keep things focused on why people are here people are here on this discord server because we like this robot that plays video games for charity we're not here to argue about politics or other <laughs> drama so it's not to say that we ignore those things in life but we, we do have a channel for real life but for the most part this is a server to discuss the fun things in life about technical aspects and as a result we've made a very welcoming community that 
has been very, very nice. It's home for me. It's a lot I'm of fun. I'm glad to hear that. I literally had five people welcome me when, when I signed up for the, the server, and people I weren't familiar with it already felt like I had made friends within just a few brief moments, so I appreciated it quite a bit. Uh, that being said, thank you so much for your time, Duengo. I really do appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing uh, what's next and where we go from here. Absolutely. Thank you very much for putting up with my monologues. Some of them were a little on the long side. We'll see what comes out the other end of his editing. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. If you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to share it with family, friends, and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. All those go a really long way to helping out the podcast. Thank you so much. Have a good one.